Welcome to the Inside Aesthetics Podcast. Our mission is to strip away the myths and hype that often surround the aesthetics industry. Inside Aesthetics aims to get to the bottom of the important topics that concern medical and allied health professionals, as well as the consumers themselves. We'll be showcasing the thoughts and experiences of experts in their respective fields. Each podcast will focus on a specialty, including surgery, non-surgical procedures, nutrition, well-being, and business knowledge from the personalities that have helped shape our industry. This podcast and its related publications provide news and general educational information about cosmetic procedures and well-being. It does not promote or endorse any cosmetic procedure, brand, or product. You should seek professional medical assessment before considering any treatment. Our guest today is Fiona Tuck, who has over 25 years of experience in the skincare and wellness industry and is known in the media as the mythbuster of the nutrition world. Fiona has worked for companies such as Dermalogica in the role as their international training manager for Aspect and Cosmetics Cosmeceuticals as a corporate trainer and is the former managing director and co-owner of the leading Australian skincare brand, Skinstitute. And she is also the founder of Vitasol Nutraceuticals. Fiona also is a member of the Australian Traditional Medicine Society. Just a little apology from Jake and myself. Well, actually just me, I uh, made a bit of an error with uh, the recording. I've got to push my record on my mic channel for the first 10 or so minutes. So it sounds like I'm way off in the distant background and it was just gonna be uh, not very fair for us to sit there and ask poor Fiona to re-record everything. So we just decided to leave it for the first one and just put it down to uh, a beginner mistake, but it won't be happening again and it does get better after the first 10 minutes. So uh, thanks for bearing with us. Hi Fiona, how are you today? Very well, thank you. Thank you for having me. No problem at all. So listen, we're going to fudge our way through this because this is new for David and I. Um, Tell us about you because I have not prepped for you. I've deliberately not read your book and I have just decided that David's going to be the person who's... Yeah, David's David's expert. Makes me feel so special. I'm the sort of casual listener who knows nothing. So um, introduce yourself. Well, what would you like to know? My background, skincare and nutritional medicine. And currently what I do is combine the two. So we've also got a nutritional or uh, whole food company, so supplying nutraceuticals. So I've been in the skincare industry and the wellness industry for, I don't want to say 30 years because it's not, (laughs) but it is over 25 and it's somewhere in between the 25 and the 30. So skincare and nutrition is my absolute passion. It's what I live and it's what I breathe. And Last year, I also launched the book, The Forensic Nutritionist, which is really a in-depth look into nutrition because I really believe that there is no one-size-fits-all approach and that we're all unique, we're all individual. And so it's about looking into nutritional deficiencies, looking at what each person needs with almost a forensic approach, if you like, which is why we called it The Forensic nutritionist that's great so just going back to skin like you know many people have skin concerns like can you just give us a broad background into how you trained and and what you did with skin and now you've obviously moved to food like I know it's hard to summarize 30 years but (laughs) try if you can well I trained in the UK so I'm originally from the UK I'm an Essex girl which I don't admit to many people who but from the nice (laughs) um well, I'm from the nice part. There's lots of stereotypes. Yeah, stereotype. 
I did have white stilettos many years ago. <laughs> but that's all I'm... <laughs> but that's all I'd say. So when I studied skincare, um, it's very different to what it is now. I mean, now you can do a degree in dermal therapies. Right. But before the dermal therapy degree here in Australia, it was a one-year course, I think, something like that, which was nails and all sorts of things. So that's more for a therapist. That's for a therapist. So I studied in the UK, it was a three-year full-time course. It doesn't even exist anymore, which was um, aesthetics. It was skincare. It was body. We even did aerobics and we even did nutrition as part of that. So it was a very in-depth training that I loved. It was absolutely fascinating. And you had to have a minimum number of O-levels. This is, uh, I think you had to have five O-levels to be able to to get into the course and you had to be over 21. So very different criteria to what it is, is now. And once I had qualified, I did a lot of different things. So I worked in skincare centers. I worked for cosmetic companies and skincare companies. I also ran my own business in the UK as well. I had my own very small skincare center. One, Well, we had, there were two of us that actually worked there. And then I decided to travel. I wanted to see the world and came over to Australia and it was somewhere that I had always wanted to go ever since I was a little girl. I think I watched Skippy the Kangaroo <laughs> on the television too much and the Sullivans and Neighbours. And I just had this almost, without getting spiritual, a calling to come to Australia. And I remember arriving here with a big grin on my face going down to the Opera House. I knew no one. Yep. And I was just so happy to be here. And I, I basically backpacked around the world for 18 months, but 12 of those months was here in Sydney. Okay, so how long have you been here now for? I've been here since January 2000. So I came over here, I think it was 96, as a backpacker. Um, but even then worked in skincare over here. It's a great job to travel around the world with. And really felt this was where I belonged and this was my home. So when I went back to the UK, I then went to Greenwich Uni and did adult education and studied there, working part-time in bars and in skincare centres and doing what I could to, to get the money to support that education. Sure. And then worked in the equivalent of a TAFE college training in skincare and really loved the education side of things. And that's when I applied for a job in Australia. There was a job that came through um, in one of the professional magazines that wanted a senior educator for a skincare company here called Dermalogica. And I applied for the role and I got it. So the next thing I knew, I was on a plane to Australia in January 2000. And the rest is history. That's great. So how many years did you work in skincare before you sort of branched off and did, uh, you know, food and nutrition? And now you're doing yoga as well, I hear. I'm doing yoga, although I've stopped teaching yoga now. In fact, okay. I haven't been doing as much yoga as I would like to. So I'll have to get back into that um, in the in the new year. So skincare, I've been in skincare for, you know, ever since I left school. And then nutrition was sort of part of it, but I wasn't purely practicing nutrition. So I went back to study nutrition um, when I was here in Australia. So I did basic nutrition in England, but then I went back to study nutritional medicine when I was in Australia. And that was really as a result of doing a lot of travel to Asia with my job. And in Asia, they would say to me, 
oh, eat this because this will bring your energy up or don't eat that. Or they would tell me certain foods to eat depending on how I was feeling and very much looked at food as food is medicine. And I had never looked at food in that way before. I had always looked at food as something that would really, to be honest, make you fat or make you thin. There was either good food or, or bad food. And what I thought was good food many years ago wasn't, you know, I'm talking lean cuisines and diet coke. I'm talking diet food that I thought was good and I thought I was being healthy. I mean, that was something that was ingrained into us in the 80s is low fat being healthy and now we know that's not true. So that then took me on the journey of nutritional medicine, which once I came out of um, Skin Institute after leaving Dermalogica and doing training, I then worked for different skincare companies and then ended up at Skin Institute as uh, the managing director and um part owner, I, I, I guess um, you could say as well. And then once um, coming out of Skin Institute, that's when I, I really purely started focusing on nutrition as in um, the nutraceutical side and, and started Vitasol. So I think that's when we first met was when Skin Institute was just starting. Yes. And that, that was back in uh, 2007. Gosh, it's gone so fast. It's gone. It's you're gone ordinary. very, very fast. So, which is worrying because you're the same age as me, and we've got the same birthday. We're born the same day. Same <laughs> really? Yeah, it's bizarre. Um, yeah, we were saying to David before we started recording that you know, as doctors, we don't get educated in nutrition, food. It, it's sort of, it's I don't know why. It's it, weird, isn't it? I mean, well, you took your card as a mechanic. Mm. It's interesting. And this is where I stick up for doctors a little bit, because I think doctors get a really bad rap with that and get very judged on not necessarily taking a holistic approach. And I think with nutritional medicine, for instance, we, we look at the body in a holistic way and we try and look at the root cause of what might be going on at a biochemical level or perhaps, um, looking at the diet and what somebody might not be getting and and trying to look at the bigger picture and look at what might be the cause. Whereas with doctors, they're very much trained in medicine. It's it's a different approach. You're not necessarily looking, looking to the root cause and to treat the body holistically. You're looking for the problem to fix it, to fix it with medicine. And I think people need to be aware of the difference with that because doctors can't be everything. And I think sometimes people look at doctors as, as God, they should be trained in absolutely everything and know the answer to everything. The human body is so complex. No. I mean, it's, it's more that, um, you know, people such as yourself and doctors need to work together. I think so. Absolutely. What is interesting though, is with vets, they do look at nutrition and, you know, one of the first things a vet will say, if you bring an animal into a vet is what are you feeding your Mm. pet? Or they'll look at the, the coat of the animal and that might give them a good indication on kidney health, for instance, or general health and wellbeing. They'll look at the eyes that, you know, they'll, they'll do more, um, studying of the physiology of the animal and that will give them a good indication of what's going on internally. So I think that's really interesting. And I think the way that medicine is going, there are a lot more doctors that I'm aware of because I I work with doctors too that are taking more of a holistic approach and there's a lot more education now available, such as functional medicine that that doctors can go into if they want to go down that that route. But there is a fine line, I think, between... 
um, going too holistic and then sort of stepping away from the roots of traditional medicine. Sure. I mean, look, my wife's a naturopath, so I can hear exactly what you're saying. But why do, at some point, why do doctors get labelled as wacky if they go that route rather than sticking to, you know, the traditional Western medicine? At some point, there seems to be a happy balance. Otherwise, you're deemed as knowing nothing or, oh, he's a bit of a quack. Yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes that comes down to perhaps ignorance or I think it comes down to fear of the unknown or not understanding things because I'm all for evidence and an evidence-based approach. But sometimes we can be bound by evidence and we can be limited to, to that. And what I mean by that is, you know, what... With, with medicine, with nutrition, there are always new studies coming out. And you can look at, say, 10 different studies on coffee, for instance, and some will actually say it's carcinogenic, and then other studies will say that it will actually help to protect us from cancer. So I think with studies, sometimes it can be quite misleading, and sometimes there may not be any evidence for something, but if you've been practicing for over 20 years and you know for sure that there are certain things that you can pick up on your clients and you know that, for instance, certain foods don't agree with that person and they get better without them, then even though the evidence may not be there to support it, you get, you're getting the results. And that's when I would be sort of saying, well, sometimes evidence is great, but sometimes there are there are gaps and you, you can go with, with non-evidence as well, well. You've got to be cautious with any study because there's always a motivation behind the study. Exactly, so. exactly. And there's always a lot of confounding factors as well. So, I mean, you know, you might look at someone um, in terms of, you know, they've got an illness, but there's a, they might be eating all the right things, but they've got a poor lifestyle. So I think in terms of when you're looking at all this evidence, it's like there's so many different factors that can cause someone to become ill. It's hard to just sort of blame it totally. on one particular thing. I was listening to that interesting um, podcast, uh, Joe Rogan. Yeah, that podcast with uh, Chris Cresser and the vegan doctor, and they were talking about the evidence for eating meat, not eating meat. And, you know, they were. it was interesting when they started delving into, well, are these people exercising? Are they smoking? Is it processed meat they're eating? Are they eating fruits and vegetables with that? Are they getting eight hours sleep a night? There were so many different things that it was impossible to be able to... Um, for, for them to... You I can't guess, to tease to, out. Yeah. yeah, it's very difficult to identify what's exactly. actually causing it. It's everything. Exactly. I mean, even with the whole saturated fat um, debate, if you like, we, we were always taught that saturated fat causes cardiovascular disease. Now we're not so sure. Um, I remember, you know, sort of in the 70s when my um, mother was pregnant and she would smoke all the way through... The, the pregnancy and you know doctors used to say have a bottle of guinness and have a cigarette to deal with <laughs> morning sickness i mean god wow. you know things change so even what we know now that probably will change in another 10 20 years and things with gut health for instance that's almost changing every day what we're learning about gut health one minute we're told to take pro probiotics now we're thinking perhaps they may not be as beneficial as we once thought and they have to be strain specific to be able to treat certain conditions so Information is constantly changing for exactly the reasons that you've you've just spoken about. It's really interesting. When you're talking about um, probiotics, is there a difference between getting it in a capsule form and getting it from, say, something like kimchi or sauerkraut? Do you have a, a preference or does one work better than the other? That's We could spend hours, oh, hours <laughs> on this. And um, 
again, it, it comes down to the specific strains of probiotic and who needs what. It comes down to when, you, when you're talking about probiotic capsules, it depends on the manufacturing process because some probiotic could actually be destroyed in the processing. They're very sensitive to light and to heat. So you really are manufacture dependent on the on the manufacturer and how they they process the product it depends on the transportation of the product whether it's refrigerated and the number of uh, organisms or well so much yes but it's really the the strain but also the number in the fact that obviously some are going to be lost due to the digestion and the hydrochloric acid. So the higher the number, the more chance there is of the probiotic surviving, if you like, which is why the, the higher dose is recommended. Okay. But from, from my understanding, the, the latest research is pointing to, you know, general broad probiotics may not be as beneficial as we we once thought because it depends on what you actually need it for and what specific strain that that you need. However, things such as kimchi, fermented vegetables, and because of the specific strains that they contain tend to be beneficial for our health. And again, you know, they're the ones that have been eating eaten for years in um, countries such as Japan and Asia. Um, and trying to get it as naturally as possible would be the most beneficial way. And of course, now we're looking at prebiotic, which is mm. is really looking to be the most promising thing because that's going to nourish your own microbiome. So just for, I guess, for people that are listening that don't know the difference, because I'm not even clear on it, the difference between a prebiotic and a probiotic. Hands up, nor do I. I don't know. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> I, I live in a nutrition bubble, I think everybody knows. So probiotic is pro-life if you like and so probiotic is what we can take in a, a powder or a capsule form which are live bacteria that help to support the health of our own gut microbiome. A prebiotic is pre-life so that isn't live bacteria it supplies the the food, if you like, for the live bacteria to survive and to multiply. Create the right environment for them to thrive. Exactly. So if you're taking probiotics, but you're not getting enough prebiotic, which tends to come from fiber, from fruits and vegetables, if you're not getting that, then the probiotic isn't really surviving. You're not creating that that wonderful environment for the probiotic to to thrive. And if you are taking a probiotic and you are not, you don't have your own healthy gut microbiome, then that probiotic really is only as effective for as long as you're taking it. So, so really what we want to be doing is really taking the prebiotic, which is the fiber to nourish your own gut microbiome. Also what that will do, um, the prebiotics supply the food, if you like, for the probiotic, which then um, produces what we call the the short-chain fatty acids in the gut, which are what's going to actually help to strengthen the gut microbiome or the cell lining of the gut, and it helps to reduce inflammation, mm. which is why fibre is so, so important for our health. It's, it's helping to protect us from a number of chronic diseases, and it's the key for having a, a healthy gut microbiome as well. Can I pick you up on the leak? Or I think you said inflammation of the gut. Yes. Something my wife says a lot. Is that a, a diagnosable thing or is it a concept? 
Are you referring to leaky gut? Yeah, and, and inflammation uh, of the gut or of the body. L lots of holistic doctors will talk about, you know, these are pro-inflammatory foods or your, your lifestyle choices are creating that. And they talk about using alkali foods to, to take down right, the okay. acidity. Two, two different things in a way. So okay. with the, the short-chain fatty acid production, that, that comes from having a healthy microbiome, having the prebiotic to supply the, the food for the probiotic, they act as anti, it's anti-inflammatory for you. So it's reducing yeah. any possible inflammation. So if somebody has got gut issues like Crohn's or IBS, then um, so gut issues like Crohn's or IBS are inflammatory bowel conditions. So having the short chain fatty acid production is going to actually help to reduce that inflammation and, and strengthen the gut. Mm. So that's different to inflammatory foods. And this is a really good question because saying that food is inflammatory, you know, you can hear a lot of people say dairy is inflammatory. I don't think there are any studies to actually show that dairy is inflammatory. It would only really be inflammatory if somebody has got an allergy or a severe intolerance. Same with gluten, for instance. So if somebody was celiac or somebody had a gluten intolerance, then well, particularly celiac, you're going to get a, a lot of inflammation if a celiac was to eat gluten. And you can actually prove that. You could take a biopsy and see it Ex under a microscope. Exactly. So I think sometimes the words inflammatory foods are thrown around a little bit too much. If you have a teaspoon of, of sugar, for instance, a lot of people say sugar is inflammatory, but it depends how much. Yes. So if you have a diet that is really high in sugar, processed foods, alcohol, then it possibly could aggravate inflammation or low-grade chronic inflammation within the body. And that may be just a little bit what we were talking about earlier because they're not getting any of the good stuff. They're not getting the antioxidants. They're not getting the fruits and vegetables because the diet um, isn't rich in those. So I think we can't be quite as black and white to say this food is inflammatory and this food isn't. It really does depend on the amount somebody is, is eating and their diet and, and lifestyle. Um just backtracking for a second on pre and probiotics um, in relation to antibiotics, it seems like antibiotics have been something that I guess even doctors are warning us about in terms of their, you know, use, like prolific use um, to treat a lot of things and in terms of where that leaves the gut post a course of antibiotics, where does pre and probiotics fit into that and yeah, just get your, your general. Yeah, it's a good question. I think with antibiotics, depending on, you know, the type of antibiotics and the strength of the antibiotic, but they they will destroy the good the good and the bad. We can get bad bacteria in the gut as well. So they will destroy that depending on how much and how much of a course you have, you, you know, how many courses should I say will depend on how that will affect the gut. But it, it can take up to six months for the gut microbiome or the gut flora to repopulate and, and rebalance saying that the that's when something like probiotics can be really beneficial so we used to think that once you've taken a course of antibiotics you should then take probiotics to replace the beneficial bacteria but now we're, we're actually thinking that whilst you're taking the antibiotic it's going to be more beneficial to take the probiotic at the same time so if you took the antibiotic in the morning take the probiotic a little bit later in the day and that is to maybe minimise the destruction of the actual good 
bacteria. So it's thought to be more beneficial to take it during the course and after, I would say as well, Mm. rather than just waiting till the course is finished and then taking the probiotic. Mm. I think sort of to summarize a couple of things that we were saying, it looks like we're sort of moving towards personalized medicine. There's no one rule for everyone. You know, someone might be someone who's always prone to weight loss, someone struggles to put on weight. And we're going to realize as time goes on that our genes are really dictating what food and what medicines and how we should eat and how we should live our lives. That seems to be where we're going. Did you agree with that? Or I agree with that. It's an area that I find fascinating and that really excites me. And I think we're going to be seeing more DNA testing because we are all different and we all do react to things differently. And we, you know, some people are better with more intense exercise. Some people are better with walking and slow exercise. Some people work better with a high carbohydrate diet. Some people need more meat than others. Mm. Um, Some people don't do well on a really high fat diet. So we are all unique and we are individual. And I think the more we can test for that and the more um, testing gets refined, then that will be very interesting. So we can really then personalize diets, personalize nutrition, and potentially we could even affect genetics as well, you know, or or maybe um, reducing the gene to actually switch on. Yes. Could be very, very interesting. I mean, my understanding, I wasn't massively keen on genetics, but You've got the genes, but they're not necessarily expressed. The environment will influence what you, you know, what you're programmed to maybe do or not do. So like you said, if you can alter your diet, maybe you can affect your dog's coat or Yeah, it's really interesting. And I don't know the exact percentage, but it is, it's not as high as we think of the gene actually switching on. It, it is very influenced by environment, whether that be stress, whether that be the foods that we eat, nutrition, you know, there's a lot of different factors, whether that be exercise as well, because even exercise can affect um, our genes as well, which is really, really interesting. So I think that, um, yeah, we may have a genetic tendency, if you like, but that gene may not express and we we can have an influence on how that gene expresses which is quite exciting yeah i guess that sort of leads on to your thoughts on the various i guess fatty diets or maybe not fatty maybe they're things that people can stick to for a long time so things like people choosing to become vegan not necessarily for ethical reasons, but for dietary or health reasons. That seems to be, from my experience, a newer thing that's come around in the last couple of years. It wasn't something 10 years ago, for sure, in my experience. Well, maybe there's been a re-emergence of it now. I think, you know, being a bit stereotypical, but, you know, vegans sort of 20 years ago were sort of the the hippie bean yeah. lentil eating, yoga-loving um commune loving people and yeah. um, oh that's how people viewed vegans we, we we didn't meet as many vegans i mean i was back in the uk in the summer and every restaurant even every country pub i went into had a vegan menu wow. that's unheard of you know i was actually quite shocked with that and it, it's really quite big in the uk i was surprised at that and i think i see in clinical practice more and more people turning to veganism especially young girls and that's when it does concern me because i you know a couple of years ago we were seeing more 
I guess, orthorexia, clean eating, where people were becoming obsessed with organic food, clean food, raw treats, having as pure food as possible. And in a way, it's another form of eating disorder. It's a way of controlling the food. It's a way of really sort of fixating on what you Mm. eat. And seeing a lot of young girls now, especially sort of school-age girls, teenagers, turning to become vegan and getting really fixated on what they can and they can't eat. They can't have honey because it comes from bees and getting very strict on it. And it may not be, as you said, for ethical reasons, I am beginning to get concerned that for some people, not everyone, in a way it is a a new eating disorder. It's their way of controlling food and saying, sorry, I can't eat that because it's not vegan. What do you think's driven that trend? Is it? I, I think social media has a lot to do with it and they see younger influencers, sort of bikini-clad models that are fit and tiny and perhaps they've been on the clean eating and now they're turning towards veganism and then the young girls copy it. So social media really is very influential for a lot of people, but particular, particularly the, the, younger, the younger teenagers that are very influenced by it. So I think... You know, that is a concern because going vegan, sure, there are ethical reasons, there are environmental reasons, but if you look at it from a nutritional perspective, there are certain nutrients that you cannot get in a vegan diet or are very likely to be deficient in a vegan diet. And then we've got to look at synthetic supplementation for that. You mean like, uh, like vitamin B12, you mean? Or? Vitamin B12, um, iron particularly B12, because Mm. really the only source of B12 is via animal produce. There's a little bit of B12 in mushrooms, but other forms of B12, such as, say, in spirulina, isn't a bioactive or a bioavailable form. So it's a pseudo B12. You're not going to get the same benefit. So things like zinc, iodine, for instance, all of these things, there is a even calcium, if they're not having enough calcium-rich foods. Oh, you better get in the mushrooms. Well, I, well, <laughs> I mean, look, you know, uh, my girlfriend and I did vegan for about 18 months and we've slowly started to reintroduce some animal products. Um, we were supplementing with vitamin B12, but it seems like it's not something that you should enter into lightly. Um, going vegan, you need to really understand, you know, as you've been pointing out, where you're going to be deficient because it's easy for these things, Absolutely. these deficiencies to creep up on Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Um, and I think that, as you were saying, a lot of young people are doing it without understanding or at, about or educating themselves on how they need to do it safely. Absolutely. And I, I see young girls that, <laughs> and even be, be, becoming vegetarian, well, I'll say, well, where's your protein and they'll they'll say what's that I, I just don't eat meat or I don't eat animal products and they're not getting that that balanced diet and they they will become nutritionally deficient and from my experience when people go vegan for the first couple of years they feel amazing because they've increased the plants in their diet so they're getting more fiber they're getting more antioxidants they're getting more vitamins and minerals and they've probably reduced a lot of the processed food that they were eating. So they feel amazing. And then about two years in, they tend to crash because that's when the nutritional deficiencies start to kick in. Mm -hmm. B12, for instance, 
well, it's one of the only B vitamins that can be stored in the body. And so when you get a B12 deficiency, it can be a few years before it actually starts to manifest with the symptoms within the body. And that's why to start with, they feel amazing. And then a few years in, they can actually really crash. I mean, I know vegans that have um, literally done that and then have started eating meat again because they just couldn't you know, mm. couldn't function properly. And apparently some of the effects from vitamin B12 uh, being deficient in it is irreversible. I've heard, I'm not sure how true that is, but I've, I've heard that some of the some of the sites... If it's a severe deficiency, you can um, get nerve damage. So it's particularly in the extremities. So that can happen. Also, you know, one of the first signs of B12 deficiency, it will affect your memory mm. and short-term memory and you forget what you're talking about. <laughs> Anyone here? <laughs> I think they need some shots, David. <laughs> We've got some vitamin B12 upstairs. Um, and you see it a lot. I mean, B12 deficiency, a good doctor, even a, a GP would check for a B12 deficiency if someone's got, got early signs of, say, Alzheimer's or dementia because after about the age of 60, our ability to absorb nutrients severely d- diminishes. And so... B12 would be one of those nutrients that is affected. So our B12 absorption diminishes as we age and it will affect brain function and cognitive health. So that is something that a good GP should check for in the in the age population. I mean, looking at this the other way, I know people who have B12 shots, it seems to me, every week. That's obviously doing things the other way around maybe you're overly sort of analyzing things like you know should we be having blood tests or i'm a big believer in pathology checks and again now we're seeing like these iv vitamin infusion clinics popping up which again concerns me because a lot of them don't actually do blood work or do pathology checks prior to the infusion. Now, some vitamins are water-soluble. So if you're infusing something like vitamin C or the B vitamins, it, it, there's little um, problem with that, if you like, because it, it's going to be excreted from the body. But something like B12, yeah, if you're doing that all the time and you're not checking, or if you're you're giving somebody iron, I'm sure a doctor wouldn't give iron without doing a check. If they do, then I'd be running a mile. Um, you know, some things we can overdose on, so so you have to be really, really careful. Okay. Also, oh, no, no, go on. I was going to say, I've um, also heard that even some of the animal product that we're getting now is, well, meat is, de- is deficient in B12 as well because of the quality of the meat that is available to most people. Doesn't, it, the animals are depleted in it themselves. So there's actually a need to even supplement, even if you aren't a vegan. But I'm not sure, again, if that's something you've heard of. Or- I haven't heard about that, but it, it wouldn't surprise me. And it's interesting because sometimes vegans get a bad rap or vegetarians for being low in B12 and being low in iron. There are some very responsible, if you like, vegans and vegetarians, and there are people that may not classify themselves as a a vegan or a vegetarian that can have shocking B12 and shocking iron because they're simply not getting enough nutrients either. So just because you don't have a label doesn't necessarily mean that you're eating well and you're not prone to nutrients prone to nutritional deficiencies mm. i mean i came around to david two weeks ago we had a great buffalo didn't we yeah <laughs> so i thought he was vegan well I'm, he said well, we're having buffalo for dinner well i've, I've moved to, I've, I've moved to game meat so i guess for me that was um a way i could sort of reconcile it in my own mind where I, I feel like i need and i want animal product but i've 
meat that's been hunted in the wilds not being you know kept in you know large feed lots and fed antibiotics and hormones and i guess for me it, it seemed like a more ethical healthier alternative and we're trialing that at the moment but i guess time will tell yeah just to touch on what david was saying about the quality of the meat i've also heard various people say that the quality of or the nutrients within our soil and therefore our vegetables and fruit mm. is also potentially not what it was a hundred years ago is that is there any evidence to that or is that just i don't know about the evidence and i don't know how it compares to you know a hundred years ago but i know that the um the soil and especially here in australia for things like magnesium and zinc um Will, if the soil is depleted, then that will affect the quality of, of the plants. And I think that's where sort of things like the biodynamic farming and sort of putting the nutrients back in the soil is becoming quite popular, but it's not necessarily a, an easy thing to do. Mm. But we, you know, from my understanding, the soil and farming methods, you know, the, the more farming you do, the more you're going to deplete that that soil so i guess as time goes by the soil will get depleted unless somehow we put that nutrients back into the soil which is a whole other debate with say if you are vegetarian or vegan and you're not eating animal based products but then if the soil is you know fertilized with sort of blood and bone and things like that where do you draw the line yeah how do you know what do you think david i don't know where do you draw the line in terms of well, when you were pure vegan, what what would you have said? Nope, I can't do that because that's breaching the rules. In terms, well, ethically or from a health perspective? Well, I guess just from a health perspective. Um, we tried to stay away from animal products as much as possible. So that would be pretty much everything. So no dairy, no meat, um, all derivatives. But it's really hard. It's not. It's not easy. And I think sometimes. It's about what you don't know anyway. So, for instance, you don't know how that plant was grown or what fertilizer was was used. So sometimes I think being vegan or vegetarian, you may be eating things that you're actually not. I mean, there's a big debate online, are Oreos vegan or not? I don't <laughs> I don't know. That was the thing. <laughs> apparently they are. Apparently, are they? Apparently. There you go. But then some people are saying, well, they're not because of blah, blah, blah. I don't eat Oreos, so I don't know. I mean, I only found out a year or so ago that um, alcohol isn't vegan. Oh, it's sort of hard. How far down the rabbit hole do you go? I mean, exactly. It, even from the ethical perspective, I mean, the amount of animals that are are killed and slaughtered in the collection of vegetables when those big combines come through and, and rip up paddocks and kill bunnies and all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. I mean, where do you stop? It's it's sort That's of hard it. to know. And then the amount of vegans I know driving around in nice fancy cars with leather seats and <laughs> Chanel handbags and nice shoes. Sure. Yeah, it's okay. tough, isn't it? It's tough. Yeah, um, but I think if if you feel you're doing the right thing, then then that goes a long way. Yeah, I agree. That probably leads really well on to, I guess it's such a big topic, but the organic versus non-organic produce thing debate, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you've got a simple way of putting it for our listeners, but it seems to be that it's becoming more and more popular to try and go organic in this desperate drive to try and eat clean but is that real it's a great question and if you'd asked me this question a couple of years ago my answer would have been very different mm. right so i'm glad you're asking me now i think again we were so caught up in this clean eating bubble and even i went you know 
really organic for a for a point and then found it very hard to be able to get certain and expensive probably. and expensive to get certain produce organic and then it comes down to do I eat non-organic or do I go with that and my answer simply is I think you're better to eat broccoli that's non-organic than no no mm. broccoli at all and there isn't enough hard evidence to support that non-organic food is dangerous. I think if you thoroughly wash your fruits and vegetables and you're having enough fruits and vegetables in the diet, that's going to outweigh any chemical residue, you know, the amount you would actually have to eat yeah. to have a have a negative effect. So I think it's about doing what you can. I mean, there are some foods that are more heavily sprayed and where possible, I will always try and buy organic apples. But if it's a case of, say, David offered me an apple now and he only had a, a non-organic apple and it was that or not have one, then I, w I would have it. I think we can get too caught up in, then it starts to become almost almost like um, an obsession yeah. and I think we have to be careful with that. I think getting more fruits and vegetables are better than not eating them if they're not organic. And something that's very interesting, my and, and probably what's really changed my view, I've found the longer I've practiced nutrition, the more I've actually seen results with people. We get too obsessed about things that really don't make a huge difference. Mm. And so I've gone really back to basics and really back to a kind of an, a no-nonsense approach to healthy eating. So again, as I said, eat organic where you can, if you can afford it. If you can't afford it, wash your fruits and vegetables. But where I was just about to, to go was my father was obsessed with eating all organic to the point where, you know, we'd be in a restaurant and like, don't eat the broccoli because it's not <laughs> organic and it's full of pesticides. He would never eat mushrooms because they were heavily sprayed. He was absolutely obsessed. So if we went out for a meal, he wouldn't eat the vegetables if they weren't organic. Anything that you brought into the house had to be organic. He was absolutely obsessed with it. And he ended up getting cancer and, you know, it didn't do him any favours, put it that way. And I think sometimes we can get so obsessed with, oh my God, you know, this is going to cause this and the chemical residue on a piece of celery. I think sometimes we just have to do what we can, but not overthink it. Yeah, we've got to live in the real world. It could become a self-fulfilling prophecy. You worry about something so much, exactly. you, you well, actually look, will it into existence. Well, look at um, Steve Jobs. He was uh, he was obsessed with clean eating as well. Mm. Didn't know that. Um, I don't know if this is a similar question or not, but how do you feel about organic meats versus free range and free range eggs versus non-free range, etc.? Like, is there a, a nutritional difference between these things, or is it just a, I guess, an ethical? Argument. I think from I think both actually because um, you know if well just ethically battery hens and not even going outside and you know that that would affect the quality of, of the egg but also ethically I just wouldn't be able to bring myself to to buy cage eggs now I now I know about it yeah. um, same with with meat I think organic. But grass-fed, for instance, choosing that 
over grain fed because the grain fed would potentially have more omega-6 in there so going for the the grass fed would be a much better option and Mm. if we have meat then we'll always go organic grass fed where possible same with the chicken organic free range yeah I had a chat, uh, interesting conversation with our butcher, and he was saying that... As you do. Yeah, as you do. Oh, we, I know Colin the butcher from East Village, if you're listening. Um, so he was saying that some of the meats that he stocks, he can't get organic because, I can't say the ins and outs, but for example, let's say there was a, I don't know, a, a flu of the hens or whatever. I'm making this up now. Flu of the hens. It's better to give a small dose of, let's say, antibiotics to those isolated hens who are ill, but therefore you can't call the flock organic, then deplete the whole flock of chickens because you're trying to maintain organic but let the flu spread. He says it's really difficult to actually get that certification because of issues like that. It is really, really difficult. And um, even with some plants and vegetables, you can buy chemical-free, but they're not certified organic. So it's, it's very hard to get the certification. And even then... How do you know that the field next door is <laughs> sprayed? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, they must have very strict strict guidelines. But I guess again, do do what you can. Yeah. And I think it's more of a problem if you're eating a lot of processed meats. Mm-hmm. You're eating deli meats and, and really processed foods that have a lot of additives and chemicals in. They're the, they're the things I'd be be more concerned about. Um. In terms of diets, things like I've heard people going on like carnivore diets now with they're eating like all meat, no vegetables. Um, you know, so we've got the keto diet that seems to have been around for a little while. What are your What are your thoughts on those diets? I haven't looked into the carnivore <laughs> diet. I'm just sounds laughing hard, when sounds I so say. hardcore. It's just- I, I mean, when I saw that, I just thought this is ridiculous. I, I can't even believe that people would even try it and just only eat meat. To, to me, it just sounds absolutely ridiculous. There is no way that that can be a healthy thing to do. It's ridiculous. Mm. You're not getting the fibre. It's not supporting gut health. You're not getting the all the necessary vitamins and minerals. You're not going to be getting any vitamin C. So it's the most absurd, ridiculous diet that I've I've heard of. And to me, any new diet, any new diet fad really is just another money-making scheme of someone wanting to sell a book or get, get rich quick. Mm. And what concerns me is that there are a lot of very easy influence people out there that will try anything. Mm. And this is where it becomes, to, in my mind, quite quite dangerous. Well, the people that I heard who were doing, those couple of really prominent people that are on this carnivore diet and according to them, they've done it for, for because of autoimmune issues. So everything they eat makes them sick and they've had to, as a process of elimination, remove everything from their Is diet. the person on the Joe Rogan podcast? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I listened to that one. Yeah. Um, I think it's Dr. Jordan Peterson was talking about it, um, the, him and his daughter um, uh, on the carnivore diet, and they've now gotten to a point where... They've now made a lot of money selling a lot of books on it, I'm sure. Uh, I don't know, but, I mean, they, they apparently feel really... I'm pretty sure she was saying she gets a small amount of vitamin C from beef and she only eats beef. Yeah, they only eat beef. That's it. So he'll... Anyway, you're the expert, so yeah, I'm going to believe yeah, you would, the podcast. I was just listening to it going, oh, my gosh, that sounds so so intense. Like You just, wouldn't be getting enough. No. You wouldn't be getting enough. Um, could we also just briefly discuss the gluten-free thing? Because mm. that seems to be really popular here in the eastern suburbs of <laughs> Sydney. But is it 
yeah. again, is it something that is real and has happened and we are more intolerant to our food because it's overly processed? Or is it just another thing that some people are genuinely gluten-free and other people decided they are, but they're not? I, th- I think it's a bit of both. When I came to Australia backpacking, it was big then, gluten-free, and I'd never heard of it before. And I, I found it quite fascinating. And then going to other countries, going to the States, going to the UK, nobody had even heard of gluten. It mm. was people just, unless somebody had severe celiac disease, um, but you couldn't you couldn't cater for it. But now going back to the UK, for instance, it's, it's everywhere, even in, in America, you can cater for it. So again, I think it's become a, a trendy thing to be. But I do think that... Well, celiac disease is very different. So that's when somebody cannot eat gluten. They never will be able to to eat it. But gluten intolerance, a lot of people will claim to be gluten intolerant. And when they when they eat gluten, that they can have um, weird reactions to it, such mm. as bloating, brain fog. And there's very limited evidence to support that. However... I think where the problem arises, and my thoughts on this, is that we are seeing an increase in gut issues and increased gut permeability. And therefore, if the gut is weakened, and that can well be due to having a diet that is rich more in refined processed foods, we're not getting enough prebiotic fiber, we're not getting enough fiber, um, then we can see a, a weakening of the gut lining and Gluten does contain or causes the release of what we call zonulin, which causes increased gut permeability. Mm. So if people are on a really high gluten diet, they're having a breakfast cereal, they're having sandwiches at lunchtime and then pasta for dinner, and that's pretty much their their diet, then potentially they could have what we call leaky gut or increased um, gut permeability, which would then make them more reactive to things such as gluten, which could then potentially create an almost autoimmune type response within in the body. And we're seeing more things like Hashimoto's, thyroid problems, mm. rheumatoid arthritis, which is all meant to stem to this, this leaky gut. So I think some people are reacting more to gluten now, but it's stemming from increased gut permeability rather than a natural mm. intolerance to gluten. So if you basically fix the gut up, then they mm. should be able to eat gluten, no problem. Okay. I mean, I my very brief background, I used to work as a surgical trainee and I did a lot of uh, colorectal surgery, so bowel surgery. So when we do, you know, people come in with all sorts of funny symptoms and they have a colonoscopy, which is a camera into the gut. And many of these people would have random biopsies taken because we can't see anything and the histology or the test on the microscope comes back as normal. And yet these people just have symptoms and funny bloating and diarrhea. And do you think that's our food or do you think it's lifestyle and stress or can we not quantify this leaky gut or, or, or these, the spectrum of what you're talking about? I, I think it's a combination of stress. Um, I think it's a combination of what we're eating so we might not be getting enough nutrients and I think it can be this increased gut permeability as well that can be worsening or aggravating our our symptoms to what we're what we're eating Mm. and I think when you look at the countries that have the least disease um, 
longevity, you know, living the longest, they're the ones that are eating things like um, lots of fresh fruits and vegetables. They're having a predominantly plant-based diet, but with a little bit of fish and meat and, but, you know, really fresh whole foods, extra virgin olive oil, having a little bit of alcohol, a little bit of coffee, but they're not having this processed food that a lot of us just think is normal food, which isn't really food at all. Well, I guess a lot of that comes down to just the lifestyle that we live these days. People are so busy, they're stressed, they're trying to pay bills. It's, you know, I guess the, the idea of coming home and preparing a meal is, is I would challenge you on that because I think it's more, I think it's lifestyle and busyness, but it takes probably just as long to heat up a microwave meal as it does to throw in some chopped veggies and a little bit of chicken and do a, a stir fry oh. for dinner. So you can have fresh, healthy food. A lot of people, I think, don't know what healthy food is anymore. Mm. They actually have grown up thinking that packet noodles and frozen meals, um, you know, chicken tonight in a jar is actually normal. Mm. And when my nephew from the UK came to stay, I opened up the pantry and in there were all these packet sauces. Um, They were having packet rice, you know, the microwaved rice and then putting sauce and having chicken in there and just really like pre-prepared processed food with loads of chemicals and additives on and it just didn't look like real food. And for him, that's all he knew. He thought that was food. I think that's so common. Well, I think it's – I think – it's the perception that people think they don't have time because there's a lack of understanding, which is crazy because we live in a world where you can get access to any piece of information within a nanosecond, but there seems to be so much. Exactly. It's it's really, it's like it, a paradox. It's, so it's really it, Exactly. It, it, totally. And I would say, you know, to my husband, we live in a bubble. We live in a healthy eating bubble. What we eat, my family call it weird food. <laughs> oh, you eat all that weird food. And I was like, it's not weird food, it's real food, whereas they'll eat processed food, if Mm. you like. And um, I I find it really interesting. So I don't understand it either because we do have all this information, but I guess it's what you find interesting, isn't it? I find it fascinating. I've studied it, whereas some people, you know, I find it interesting that a lot of people still don't know what protein, carbs and fat are. They don't know what nutrients um, are. You know... uh, it's not even education. It's sort of this relationship with our food. We've, we don't celebrate it as like, uh, you know, sitting down with our family anymore. It's just fuel. It's just, right. I'm going to put something in my mouth and watch TV and not even think about what I'm doing anymore. Process. It's just a thing. Yeah. It's a process. Yeah. yeah. And, and we don't use food as medicine. We don't use it as nourishment. We don't use it as family time and family celebration. I mean, how many families actually sit down and have a meal together now? Most people will just have a TV dinner or they'll sit in front of the television and eat or they'll, they're so busy that they're all eating at different times and they don't actually come together and eat together. So I think there's this just I I honestly believe that there is so much processed food available. If you just walk down the aisles in a supermarket, We've become to know that as food, but really it's not food at all. Yep. Margarine, for instance. Yeah. Whoever invented that needs to be shot. <laughs> <laughs> we only use real butter in my house, but Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, you know, I, I guess maybe it's a, a Jewish cultural thing okay. for me, but we, we sit down as a family every Friday night and have done since I was, can, ever, can I remember, 
we'd sit down and have a, a, a Shabbat dinner every Friday night. Which I uh, think is amazing. And I, you know, I know few people that do that. And I think what a, what an amazing thing to do. And I, you know, I would have loved to have done that with my family. Well, maybe not my family. <laughs> no, I'm joking. You, 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 um, you can come to my family, thank Shabbat. Thank you. Um, but I, I just think what a wonderful thing because for people, you know, part of that longevity and, you know, what they call in the blue zones, people that are the healthiest and live the longest, that is key, that that family gathering or that community, that sense of community is so, so key to general health and well-being and, and to our um, mental health as well, I think, is really, really important. Yeah. Um, David, this is your thing. Oh, well, I wanted to talk about fasting. Yeah. Because that seemed, I'm really big on that at the moment. That's working well for me, but I wanted to get your thoughts on uh, intermittent fasting, whether it be like the 16-8 or 24-hour or 48-hour fasts. Can what? you break that down for, okay, so for <laughs> okay, so basically my understanding, correct me where I'm wrong, is that um, there seems to be an, a, a concept that we eat too much food and we need to give our bodies a break or a rest from digesting and processing food. And there's uh, supposed to be a lot of health benefits such as, you know, cell autophagy, um, allowing us to be more mentally sharp. And I think that apparently goes back to, you know, we physiologically haven't changed that much in the last, you know, how many thousand years where access to food all the time wasn't possible. Um, And we did go for, you know, we're sort of built to go for periods of time without eating and it's actually beneficial for our body. So there's, from what I understand, there's two, there's two different types of, two main different types of fasting that people are doing, which is you fast for 16 hours and then you eat within an eight hour, an eight hour window and wherever that works for you and your lifestyle. And then people that either do that or do it in combination with a, a intermittent or a, sorry, periodical 24 hour or 48, fast, 48 hour fasts where they don't eat for that period of time. Sounds so it's only like water. Torture. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually, well, the 24, the 24 hours is actually quite easy now for me. I don't think about it. I usually eat like once or once or once a week or once a fortnight, I won't eat for 24 hours, which is from dinner to dinner. Um, and it seems to work quite well in terms of just my cognitive function during the day. I train now on an empty stomach and I feel like I get more out of my workouts. My recovery is a bit better. Um, I've had a lot of physical injuries over the years, so I find that I'm in a little bit less discomfort, but whether that's a placebo effect or not, I don't know, but keen to hear your thoughts on that. Again, I'm, I'm all about, you know, there's no one size fits all approach and what works for some isn't going to be right for, for everyone. So with intermittent fasting, there is some studies that are suggesting, you know, really positive health benefits and... I think one of the most common ones is sort of the 16-8 where David said you fast for 16 hours, you don't eat anything, you drink water and you, you have fluids, but then you eat within a, an eight-hour period. And, you know, studies have shown that an overfed cell, if you like, is more unhealthy and that will actually increase the shortening of our telomeres so mm. basically obesity if we if we overfeed ourselves it's going to actually create more more free radical damage more more stress in the body which is going to accelerate aging and potentially disease within the body what intermittent fasting is going to do it's going to lower blood sugar it's going to help make us more sensitive to insulin so that's going to be really good for anyone that's insulin resistant that's got high blood sugar um, potential health benefits as well for possibly even high cholesterol as well 
So there are some health benefits associated with it. And when we fast for more than 12 hours, the body goes into what we call autophagy, where it's a natural self-cleansing process of the cells. Exercise will do that as well. So if if you're working out every day, it actually stimulates the cell in a way to clear out what's no longer needed, whether that's pathogens, whether it's um, damaged cells, so that we don't then end up getting potentially damaged DNA or cell mutations down the track, which can lead to uh, potential disease. Mm. So it's a natural cleansing process of the body. The way I see it, though, we shouldn't have to do intermittent fasting or sort of strict hard to follow diets if we're eating well. So it's going to be beneficial if perhaps somebody has got insulin resistance or metabolic syndrome or someone is overweight or has got potential health issues, which may have arisen from not having a healthy diet or a healthy lifestyle. If we've got a healthy lifestyle and a healthy diet, if we're eating fresh produce, if we're having an abundance of fruit and vegetables, If we are perhaps eating dinner at six o'clock, we're not eating late at night, we're not having breakfast until the next morning, we're naturally doing a a 12-hour fast. So the body can naturally go through that process anyway. We shouldn't then necessarily have to go on these really sort of extreme, hard-to-follow regimes. David's pretty hardcore, aren't you? It's just how I roll. He likes he likes the hardcore. So you know, I, I'm yeah. again, I'm I'm all about. Balance. I like experimenting. See so yeah. what, yeah. How, you know, and I, I'm all about things that are sustainable. But for some people, doing that might be something that they can follow, and it may be a way to get their their health in check. But I'm all about sustainable living and something that's that's easy to follow. If if you're doing a 16 hour fast and you can't eat until I don't know one o'clock or two o'clock in the afternoon, then it makes it very hard to meet friends for breakfast to go out for lunch. And I think if we're naturally eating well, we're having a big gap because we are designed to have that fast at night time, then potentially that's a, a healthy way to be and we wouldn't have to do that the yeah. intermittent fasting mm. it comes down to moderation as well i mean once you comes start down becoming to moderation obsessive and you know like the 16 hour you know as you're saying it can cause you to become antisocial and, e, and you know, no one wants to have, hang you around because you're too difficult so exactly and again you know it's not going to work for everyone if someone's got hypoglycemia then or you know if somebody is operating heavy machinery or flying an airplane or a you know driving a truck and they're doing fasting i wouldn't want to be or doing surgery. Yeah, or doing yeah. or doing surgery. Exactly. Injecting your face. Um, injecting your face. You've got to be really careful. So it's not going to work for for everyone, but for some people like yourself, you may be finding it, oh, it I beneficial. Ch- I might change my mind in a year. We'll see. <laughs> um, I guess we can start talking about your book. The book. The book. Can't um, believe you have not read it. Well. Yeah, I know. Guilty. There's no excuse. I've got no excuse. I, I didn't want to prep myself so much that I knew everything about what you were going to say, but um, introduce it for us. Oh, actually, this one here. That's my copy with all that. Oh, that's yours. I that's thought, oh, wow, we've been so good. We've actually, we've actually cheat sheeted everything. <laughs> there you go. That's <laughs> me. To the camera. Have a look. Uh, with the all my nutrition. orange tags on there, you can see I use it all the time. I actually thought that my girlfriend had done this. I'm like, wow, isn't she studious? She's actually already. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that's, that's me because I still reference it. Um, well, firstly, you know, I've never written a book in my life. How, how do you go about writing a book and what motivates you to do it? It motivated me because I had a good friend that actually said, you need to write a book. And then a lot of people had said, because I 
do training um, after class, do you have a book that you can recommend for extra information mm. or can you write a book and just download your information into a book? And that's really what motivated me to do it. And I had done quite a lot of writing so and articles and it was a combination of putting all that together really. It kind of just happened. If I'd really sat down and thought about it, I probably would have never got started, but it was a I'd written a lot of information and I started to piece it together and put it together. So it was more the editing of the book and the publishing that that took all the time and was a bit of a bit of a nightmare. And I'm not a natural recipe writer. I'm a chuck it all in and you know, handful of this and a handful of that. So I had to have someone check the recipes and put them all in order and make sure we hadn't missed out anything. And um, eventually it, it all came together. So the book really is about looking at everybody as an individual. As I said, there's no one size fits all approach. So I have a look at the different diets, the pros and cons. I always try and keep a a balanced approach and look at the pros and the cons that people can make their own mind up. You know, some people are really anti-dairy. So again, we go through dairy. What are the pros of dairy? What are the cons of dairy? Does your body really need it? And letting people educate themselves. So looking at signs of nutritional deficiencies. And I'm not talking about real sort of severe cases of scurvy, for instance. I'm looking at when people aren't getting sub- or when they're getting suboptimal up suboptimal nutrition, what those subtle signs are. And quite often the skin will be one of the first places to show signs of early deficiencies. Like you cut at the vet, right? Exactly. Um, <clears throat> and again, looking at the tongue, looking at the nails, looking at the hair, to get an idea, being a bit of a detective, is what may possibly be going on internally. But it's about having a look at all the different factors that could be going on. You can't just look at someone and say, oh, you've got capillaries on your face, so you've got a vitamin C deficiency. Mm. It's about just putting the pieces of the jigsaw together and then start to go, hmm, am I having enough vitamin C foods? Maybe not. And then starting to, that person can read the book and then go, you know what, maybe I'm not getting enough vitamin B because this is showing on my face. These are the foods that have got vitamin B and I'm not eating those. I'm getting these symptoms. And then they can start to recognize that themselves. And then we we look at what you can eat to help to correct that. One of the things I noticed about the book was just how easy it was to follow. It wasn't a difficult, thick read. You know, there's a lot of great information here, but just about anyone could pick this up and follow it and I'm, understand I'm it. all about making it easy and making it relevant for people so that they can actually use it. And um, it's also something I wish I had when I was studying nutrition when we were in clinical practice. I didn't have a reference book where I could quickly go to to see what foods were rich in B vitamins, for instance, or what food was rich in vitamin C. Mm. Sometimes you just need a quick, quick reference to have a look at that. So there's a, a vitamin and mineral chart in there as well, and a lot of useful information. So I find a lot of nutrition students love it. A lot of skin therapists love it as well, because it actually helps them to look at the skin in a different way. And it, in a way, marries that missing link between good skincare and skincare results and nutrition as well. Mm -hmm. So I find it's it's a useful book for a lot of people. So it's not just a recipe book. It's obviously a lot more than that. Um, can you just dip into it and just, you know, take a good recipe and cook it and, and not worry about the rest? Or does it all piece together? You can. I mean, 
it's interesting that when you study nutrition, a lot of people think you're automatically can can write recipes and cook and you're not taught that at all when you study nutrition it it tends to be something that just comes with the territory that you're interested in in cooking so there are some recipes at the back but by no means is it a recipe book it's i would call it a nutrition book with some recipes at the back and you can either use the healthy recipes or you can um read the information in the book but even you know the book came out last year and even since then there's things in there that are I need to update for the for the next book so for instance I think I say in there don't cook at extreme temperatures with extra virgin olive oil we had this discussion on the phone the other day we did um so now studies this year I think it was this year or last year have actually shown that you can cook at extreme temperatures with extra virgin olive oil originally we thought you couldn't because it has a low smoke point but because of the polyphenols that are in the extra virgin olive oil that actually will protect the olive oil from breaking down even though it has a low smoke point so I think I put moderate heat but you could actually fry with extra virgin olive oil can we just break that down that point for people who may not know well, I had an, almost had an argument because after, after I had this discussion with you, my girlfriend and I were cooking dinner and I went. To, she went to get the macadamia oil. I said, no, 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 we can cook with – Fiona says it's okay. We can use olive oil now. <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah, no, you can. And go for the extra virgin because that's, that's what's got the, the polyphenols in there. And I think in um, some of the recipes we've got rice malt syrup because it's very popular to use rice malt syrup as a sweetener. But just be aware that it's fructose-free but it, it's – still got a very high GI so you could use any sweetener of choice in a way sugar is sugar so I'd be saying you know use maple syrup or honey if you wanted to I think the misconception is rice syrup is the healthier mm. option and it's it's not so you want to explain that to Jake I think about the oils well yeah I my very layman's understanding is that if you're cooking well, I don't know, a stir fry. Obviously you need high temperature to, to right. cook a stir fry. So if you been going wrong. <laughs> yeah. So if you choose an oil that has a, like you said, a, a, a low smoking point, i.e., you know, it, it starts splattering all over the place and, and it destroys the, I don't know, how, do you, how would you put it into words? It, it can break the oil down. Break the oil down, yep. okay. Then, of course, that's a poorer choice versus something with a higher smoking point where you're not going to get... Um, so much uh, is, it, is it breaking down the free radical uh, sorry breaking down the antioxidants within the food or what, what's the actual issue with it goes rancid or what, what happens when when the oil gets too hot and it breaks down what's the what what's the byproduct of that it, it releases compounds that are yeah. which can create I think they polar compounds I'll have to double check that but um, it, it creates these compounds that could have a potential negative effect okay. within the body and potential sort of free radical damage so you want ones that are going to be more heat stable yes but with the extra virgin olive oil it potentially has a low smoke point, which means it starts to break down at a certain temperature. Mm. However, because of the polyphenols, the, the really rich antioxidants in there, that's what actually is protecting the oil from breaking down. Okay. And am I right in saying ghee has a high smoke point? Higher because you've removed, the, I guess, the um, milk solids, so it's not going to burn as much. Okay. Yeah. And what about the fat of cooking with coconut? Um, oils. I've never really got coconut oil and coconut oil is quite heat stable so I guess that's why they use it in stir fries and curries. And Tastes nice too. 
I don't know. Yeah, I, I tend to find it. I mean, everything's a basic taste of coconut. Yeah, some people like it, some people don't. <laughs> bacon, so, coconut, bacon. There you go. <laughs> with coconut oil, um, I would say use it now and again in moderation. If you're if you're doing a stir fry, fine, but don't use it every day because it's still a saturated fat. And with coconut oil, it doesn't really have any health benefits. Mm. You don't have the poly polyphenol and anti-inflammatory properties that you get with extra virgin olive oil. So it's not necessarily a healthy oil or a sure. healthy oil to have. And again, people take things to the extreme. So if they, I don't even know how coconut oil got onto the healthy food list. I, I really don't know how that happened. If you look at the countries, I always say to people, look at the countries that eat the most of those foods. The countries that eat the most coconut oil aren't the healthiest and don't have the healthiest hearts. The countries that eat the most extra virgin olive oil are the healthiest and have the best cardiovascular health. So when in doubt, Mediterranean diet. yeah, the Mediterranean diet, which is an anti-inflammatory diet, if we're sort of talking about. Um, lots of bread, by the way. <laughs> but lots of. Jake um, likes his bread. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, but when you say lots of bread, they'll have bread, but they have an abundance of fresh fruits and yes. vegetables. So it's, it's all about balance. Mm. If you just have bread on its own, then it's not, not healthy. It's going to be a high gluten, high carbohydrate diet that could have negative health benefits. Yeah, absolutely. So where can people get your book? Well, they can get the book on my website, fionatut.com. Mm-hmm. At the moment, right. I'm just changing book distributors. So it was available on all the leading online bookstores, Booktopia, Book Depository. Um, it's not available at the moment. It's out of stock until we swapped over with the book um, distributor. So early next year, it should be back in all the bookstores and on all the main online book sites as well. Great. And the only thing we want to talk, uh, Vitasol. Vitasol. That's your product. That's my new baby, which we launched, really, we launched that earlier this year into the skincare <coughs> industry. We it launched, tastes good. We launched it to the media last year and at the end of last year and then the beauty industry probably from about April, May this year. And we're, we're already over 60 stockists, which is really wow. exciting. And what Vitasol is, it's basically, it's a nutraceutical so I really felt there was a gap between skin health and nutrition. There's a missing link of connecting perhaps poor wound healing, connecting skin conditions and how they may possibly be improved by nutrition. A bit like what we were saying about doctors and even with vets, the vets will say, what are you eating? But in skincare, we don't we don't look at that as to why that might be affecting the skin. And so I wanted to bring out a product that was completely safe. So this is a whole food. It's pure as pure can be. It's all certified organic apart from three ingredients, purely because we can't get them organic or two of those are going through organic certification. Mm. And it's safe for skin therapists to recommend. So we, we don't have the risk of prescribing high dose synthetic supplements and also I'm not a fan of synthetic vitamin supplements because they are in higher doses when you take supplements in high doses they can knock out other nutrients and they also have to be converted within the body to their active form so you need other nutrients to be able to do that it's, it's you know it's, it's a complicated process and I think pumping your body full of synthetic nutrients isn't the best way to go it's 
most of us don't have enough fruit and vegetables in the in the diet. I think it's one in is it one in five Australians eats enough fruit and vegetables. It's it's really quite low, and so I wanted to provide something that's going to up the nutrient value in a really safe way, and that's what what Vitasol is. So it's designed to support general health and well-being. All of the products are designed to support telomere health, which we know um, the shorter the telomeres are associated with premature aging and potential disease. So it's about protecting cell health, slowing the aging process, but really adding nutrients in a safe and as pure way as possible. So how do you prepare it and consume it and how often should you have it? You need to have it every single day. And we've tried to make it easy for skin therapists by matching the products to topical skincare. So we've got three basic products. We've got the Infinity, which is high in polyphenols and antioxidants, which supports, I guess, your anti-aging products. So if anyone's concerned about aging, if they're having anti-aging treatments, then this would be the product to support that. If they're using retinols, topical antioxidants, then this is their internal antioxidants to support the topical. We've then got the purity, which is liver and gut support. So we know that a lot of skin conditions can be aggravated by poor gut health. So things like acne, things like rosacea, eczema can really benefit by an even hormonal imbalance by liver support and by gut health. And so this is providing that by supplying the nutrients and the whole foods and the green leafy vegetables to support that. So if anyone's needing cleansing, they're having body treatments, they've got acne or skin disorders, then we would be recommending the Purity product. Mm -hmm. And then last but not least, we've got the Flexibility, which is your skin, hair, nails and joints. And that's for anybody that's needing more minerals in the diet, which let's face it, it is most of us. This one is great for general hair, nails and skin. It's got over 74 trace minerals. It's got amino acids in there. It's got zinc. It's got vitamin C, all natural. So it's really great at supporting the wound healing process of the skin. And it's also anti-inflammatory in the skin as well. So great for general skin health, but also pre and post-op. It's great for injectables. A lot of injectors are recommending it post-injectables. And I, get some in. You need to get it in. And it's it's <laughs> interesting that I think in Australia we're a little bit slow on the uptake of nutraceuticals. In LA, for instance, all of the injecting doctors and nurses, when I say all, the majority of them are very familiar with nutraceuticals. They prescribe bromelain post-injectables. Um, That's a pineapple extract, correct? It's, it's usually taken from, from pineapple extract, which is an enzyme which is having an anti-inflammatory effect. It's also um, can affect blood clotting. You actually shouldn't take bromelain um, pre and post-op, which is quite quite interesting, but, you know, for major surgery. Mm. But um, post-injectables, um, it's, it's anti-inflammatory. And um, it's quite big overseas, particularly in the US, but we're not quite jumped on that bandwagon. But what, what's very exciting is that it's being very well received by skin therapists. And we're not about making skin therapists nutritionists. I don't think skin therapists should be talking about supplements or telling people what to take. But I do think they should be supercharging their topical skincare by supplying internal nutrients in a whole food 
form so that they're not not recommending synthetic supplements but they're supporting general health and well-being okay i mean it's a bit off topic but can you briefly discuss whether the concept of detoxing you sort of alluded to it with the liver support etc like can you detox is that real or is it just about you know depends who you talk to it's a great it's a great subject And, and where i stand on this you know the the body is designed to detox. The liver is the main organ of detoxification. We've got the skin, we've got the lungs, kidneys. They're all designed to process toxins out of the body. So it's interesting, you know, we're coming up into January and everything is going to be go on a detox, go on a detox, go on a detox. If you're eating really healthily, you're not having a load of um, processed foods and chemicals and unnecessary medications. You know, a lot of people will self-medicate and pop pills left, right and centre, you know, headache tablets and all these things which aren't great for the liver. Um, You shouldn't need to go on a detox. Correct. And even things such as juice cleansing I think are very misleading because the juice in itself isn't going to cleanse the body. What, it's almost a fast. Well, a fast will actually cleanse the body better because you'll go into this state of autophagy. The, the juicing isn't actually cleansing the body. If anything, if you do a lot of fruit juice, you're actually putting quite a lot of sugar into the body. Mm. But where it gets interesting is the liver has different phases of detoxification. So if those phases aren't working as effectively as they could, that is when you need liver support. Okay. And if you had a blood test to check liver function, that wouldn't come up because really you're only going to be checking for um, liver damage. Mm. Right? Which most of us hopefully don't have. No, exactly. So it's, it's not going to come up. Um, but poor liver detoxification um, would be somebody, for instance, that may be ultra-sensitive to caffeine, for instance, or um, is sensitive to sulfites and wine and things like that. It, it means that the liver isn't, you've got your phase one and phase two in, in particular. Now, if either of these two phases are sluggish, then we've got a problem. So phase one is a little bit sluggish, um, we can become more more sensitive to to things. If phase two is more sluggish, what's broken down in phase one then recirculates in the body and becomes more toxic because we're not clearing it out of the body as effectively, which is why when some people go on a detox, they get quite sick and they get bloated and they feel quite unwell. And it's, it's more because they're clearing out, the, the, the liver's got time to basically clear out all the toxins, but they're being recirculated because phase two isn't working as effectively. So what do we need for those phases? We need nutrients, which is quite ironic. So every single nutrient we put in our body is required for a biochemical reaction. And that's what food is, basically. It's needed for biochemical reactions within the body. So our liver is reliant on the right nutrition for it to be able to function at its optimum health. And that is what our products are doing. They are supplying the nutrients to enable the liver to be functioning at its optimum health. And really, 
if you went on a juice cleanse, for instance, and you don't have the protein because in phase two, it needs the amino acids, that phase two is going to be sluggish. So just a juice cleanse on its own, I don't recommend it at all. Yeah. So would I be correct in saying that all these detoxes and, and fad diets are really a... Fasting. Fa- <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you are eating correctly and have a good lifestyle, they're not necessary for the most part. Would that be correct or am I simplifying it too much? No, you're making it really nice and simple. What I would say, though, where I do think we do need a a cleanse, if you like, is if you've been eating way too much sugar, drinking too much Mm. alcohol, then cutting that out is actually going to be um, helping your body to cleanse naturally. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So in summary, I think we're basically saying nutrition is – fundamental and key and you know all of these other peripheral things whether it's detoxing and fasting and juice fasts and and all these fatty diets it's really people looking for a quick fix whereas actually if they just reel in their diet look at what they're doing introduce more fiber fruit um look at their nutrition then they can sort of maintain their health and optimize where they're going Exactly. And I can't tell you the amount of people that I see that really sort of want to know what's wrong with them and they want a pill to fix it. Mm. And we want that quick fix, but unfortunately, really... It's almost become a cultural thing, isn't it? It's become a cultural thing, but really it is as simple as looking at food as nutrition. So looking at food to supply the nutrients that our body needs for those necessary biochemical reactions. Then if we eat a balanced, healthy diet, a little bit of everything, not too much of any one thing, moderation is key. We're going to get the nutrients we need. We don't have to then take fancy supplements. We don't have to take synthetic vitamins. We don't have to go on fat diets. And we can live a happy, healthy life without having to worry about what we're actually putting into our body. And where can people get Vitasol? People can buy Vitasol online at www.vita-soul.com and through Vitasol stockists which are all listed on the Vitasol website okay thank you very much fantastic thank you so much for coming on you're we welcome really, thank really you appreciate for having me we'll excellent. have to have you back we'll yeah to, we'll feel like, feel like we've got so many questions here we didn't even get to touch on <laughs> because we just got so it's into such a huge topic and yeah. you know it changes every week with whatever is trending in the media you know and whatever the latest diet trend is i'm sure there'll be a new one next week yeah well we'll we'll have to have you back thank you so much really appreciate Thanks, your Jane. time you're welcome thank you